Good morning. How are you? It's truly a sacrifice to be inside a building today, isn't it? Did you see me outside? Yeah, I was having a real hard time coming in, so uh, I was out there to greet you and enjoy the weather. So we, uh, God is uh, going to bless you greatly for coming inside a building on a beautiful day like this. Uh, we are in Psalm 33. If you'd like to turn there in your Bible, we'll also project it for you. Uh, in fact, we're going to spend one more Sunday in it, so three weeks total, because it's such a great passage about praising God. Psalm 33. Uh, before we do that, I do want to pause uh, and just identify, uh, we just added to our staff, we hired uh, Ben Hill, uh, who's worked here before. Uh, he now works here again. So Bill, Ben Hill is running our um, tech. And so Ben, if you would stand so they can see you in case they don't know you, this is Ben. Good to see you. He's, he's the rock star when it comes to sound and lighting and all those things. And so it's good to have uh, Ben, and he brought his family with him, did you not? You did? Excellent. Oh, they're here, this, they're here today? Oh, good, so we can have them stand too. So why don't they stand? Yeah, we can see who your family is. Excellent. Yeah, thank you. So welcome, welcome back to BCC, and uh, we're looking forward to ser serving with you. And now I, I told him he's like driving a Ferrari of a soundboard now, so lots of little buttons and things to do. So um, we thank you for your service. Um, Let's uh, go to God in prayer as we look at Psalm 33. Uh, Father, we uh, have uh, just about a few moments to open the scriptures, dig into them, uh, and uh, we pray that it might be uh, insightful, profitable, challenging, convicting, all the things that your spirit can do, we know you'll achieve as we talk. And may it be like a one-to-one one -one conversation that is not like I'm talking to a room full of people, but as if uh, we're just having a conversation one-on-one -on -one about what you want us to know. And uh, for those uh, who don't know you that have uh, wandered in here, maybe searching for you, might the things that are said today be the information they need uh, to, to come to you, to know you as Savior and Lord. And we've all been there, so we pray for them. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, psalm 33 is a psalm about uh, why you should praise, praise the Lord. So uh, since it's been uh, two weeks since we talked about it, we have to review. So what we want to do first is just ask you a question. And the question is a very practical question. But uh, when you look at your life in a given day, a given week, how much time do you spend in that day actually stopping and praising God? I mean, you, he does something and you immediately stop and say, I've got to praise him. Do you do, you do that? How often do you do that? Uh, there's different words for praise in Hebrew. This word, uh, yada, which is used in chapter 33. Uh, I was looking in my uh, Hebrew uh, lexicon this week uh, to ask, uh, you know, not just in what context is this particular word used, but where is this word used first in the Old Testament? The very, time, very first time the word yada to, to praise God is used, that David uses here, is in Genesis chapter uh, 29, verse 35. And uh, sometimes when you do lexical studies and word studies, uh, you don't find much. Other times you have an aha moment. This was one of those aha moments when I went to chapter 29 of Genesis. First usage of praise comes in the, in the Torah, comes from the lips of Leah, uh, married to Jacob, uh, and she has sons, and one of the sons, in, at this case in point, uh, is a little boy that she calls Judah, Judah is his name. Uh, when she has this child, she praises God for the gift of the child. Why is this an aha moment? It's Bible Trivia 101, from the tribe of Judah comes, David comes, Jesus. Go read Matthew chapter 1, the lineage of Jesus. Jesus comes from the line of Judah. Uh, and if you read uh, chapter 49, uh, verses 10 and following, uh, it's from this particular tribe that the king will come, the Messiah, that, that will, that will uh, set up his kingdom of peace uh, and deal with the devil and sin. And so she stopped and praised God that God gave her this special child. 
So the, the point being, you should not... You should not put any time between when God does something amazing in your life that you see and when you stop to praise him. That's what David uh, writes about in this psalm is why should we praise God? And he had all kinds of ups and downs in his life. I mean, we know his life from scripture. He had moments of uh, amazing spirituality and other times where he completely threw his faith to the wind uh, or adverse things happened to him. Uh, And as he writes these psalms, as we've studied, uh, we've seen his heart on these pages as he took his harp put to music uh, in Psalm 33, why you should praise God. So in Psalm 33, by way of review, um, as we talked about in the first few verses, when he tells you to praise God, he says, use your voice to praise God uh, and use your instrumentation to praise God. So if you can sing, uh, he says, use that to praise God. If you you can play a musical instrument, use that to praise God. Uh, But he's going to give us uh, the the main reason why we should praise God, which we've been developing this motif. Uh, is this. We should praise God for two things. Number one is what? We should praise him for what reason? For who he is, who God is. Second reason? Well, what he does. What he, who he is and what he does. And so he's going to take that concept and he's going to weave that main idea and support it with these concepts that we'll look at. I've called them pathways of praise. But these things we talk, have talked about thus far validate that premise. So why should we praise God? Uh, well, we should praise him for who he is and what he does. And so he starts out in verses one and two. and says we should praise him for his person. So which, which name of God did he use there? He used L-O-R-D capitalized. And we talked about who that was. That is God, Jehovah, the great I am of all time, the eternal one existing outside of time and space. Uh, We praise him. So he says, when I stop to praise God, when I think about how great he is, who he is, I use the name Yahweh. I use that name. Does God have other names? Answer, yes. So we could all come up with other names of God that you could praise him for. What what might you praise him for? What name would you use? I give you permission to talk in this huge auditorium. Adonai, capital L, small O-R-D. He's Lord and Master. What else? El Shaddai. What else? What it? Elohim, uh, first word in, uh, in Genesis 1.1, when it says, in the beginning, Bereshet, God, Elohim, created, uh, bara, the heavens, the Hashemayim, and the earth, Ha'eretz. And so this is Elohim, the great creator God. You praise him for who he is. Who else? What else are the names we use? Jehovah Jireh. What else? We just ran out. Uh, there's tons, is there not? What's the point? When you see those names of God, you stop and praise him for those things. That's what David says. When I think of God, who he is, I praise him for that. I, he said, I just like the word Yahweh. That's what he uses. So we're still reviewing. We'll get to the sermon in a few minutes. You know how this goes, right? Uh, verses three to five, we praise him for his practice. What is this practice? He says, your word is true. And we talked about how this word in Hebrew means moral truth. When God speaks about do this, don't do that, he's always right. Does God's moral truth change in time? No, never changes. So what was evil 2,000, 4,000, 8,000 years ago is still evil today. What's our culture do? The opposite. And they're constantly changing what is true, what is morally true, what is morally right. And it's so messed up now. And so he says, no, you can praise God that when you read the word of God, you may not like what you read because it is moral magnetic north. But he tells you, live this way and you'll please God. Now we want to add to that, verses 6 to 9 is all we're going to look at today, uh, is praising God for his power. So the path to praise, the first two components we already looked at, we're going to add number three to that. Praise God for his power. Verse 6. It says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were, were made and the host of them by the breath of his mouth. So breath, 
denoting words that come out of your mouth. So it's just parallelism saying the same thing. He says, uh, he gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses, the depths of the ocean, like the Mariana Trench, etc. If you're a submariner, you probably know where all these trenches are in the ocean. He says, let all of the earth fear the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, the Yahweh, the eternal one. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. So verses 6 to 7 are what you should do um, as you're thinking about God. And then the effect of that is verse 8. And then verse uh, 9 starts with that, that little particle 4, giving you the, the reason why you should fear God. He restates what he's already said. He says, for he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. So if you look at this in your Bible, it's, it doesn't show this way on this translation on the text. Uh, but in verse 9, when it says, for he spoke and it was done, done is not in the Hebrew text. In your Bible, it's probably italicized, meaning they're putting it in there to finish the sentence out for you, a Westerner, to read the sentence. Because it would sound funny if it said, for he spoke and it was. But if you remove that word, which is not in the Hebrew text, uh, he's telling you exactly what God did. He spoke and poof, there it was. Didn't take millions and millions and billions of years. When there was nothing, he ex nihilo, out of nothing, spoke his creative word. This is how powerful God is. He can speak and make things happen. Uh, the, the, this particular, uh, because we love grammar before lunch, don't we? The front row does. Praise God for you. Thank you for sitting close. Uh, uh, so he says, by the word of the Lord. So the word by is a prepositional phrase, correct? Uh, oh, that's not showing the, the person question. But uh, the, the person question, by the word of the Lord, he made all these things. So it's a prepositional phrase. That's super important because it's all inspired by God. It's there for a reason. So it's important grammatically because of this. The, in Hebrew, when you read it from right to left, uh, the very first word should be a verb, subject and object. Is a preposition a verb? We'll say you in the, uh, in the, in the near God up in the top. No, it is not a verb. It's a prepositional phrase. That means it's out of word order. What's that mean? It's highly emphatic. He says, when you think about the power of God, I, I think by the very word of God, he made everything that we can see. The things that are seen and the things that are unseen. He did it by the breath of his mouth. So why is there something rather than nothing? Because there's a God who's outside of everything who's spoken into existence. Uh, years ago, when I was 15, I went to Spain uh, with my uncle from Barcelona. Uh, and, and so I went with my aunt, uh, Roberta, my mom's sister, and my uncle Tony, Antonio Sanchez, and my cousin Stephen, who was like my brother, and Papa Sanchez, and another cousin, Dee. Uh, and it was fun going to Spain. I'd never been to España. Uh, and we had a lot of fun there. But I was 15. And we were running out of things to do. We were there for a month. Uh, went all over Spain, had a lot of fun. We were in, we were in Madrid one day, kind of bored. And, and my uncle says, today we're going to go to a museum. How do you think that goes over with a 15-year-old? Huh? Are you kidding me? We're going to a museum. I, I think it was called the Prado. Have you been there? Anybody been to the Prado? Uh, you need to go on vacation. Uh, so we went there and I walked in and I'm like, oh, this is going to be really boring. It, be, it became a theological exercise because you're walking around, you're looking at these massive paintings. I mean, they were huge. Do you know how hard it is to draw something on a small scale, let alone feet wide on a piece of canvas in beautiful oils? And I was just standing there as a little kid going, wow. And remember, the, remember before cell phones and you had the little Kodak camera that had the little square light bulb on it and you'd take a picture and it'd spin around? Remember those days? Yeah, so I was just standing there going, click, this is amazing. Click, I'm out of film, it's terrible. Uh, there was a picture there, uh, The Sacrifice of Isaac by uh, Andrea del Sarto. It was unbelievable. It's like, how could she paint this large? How could it be this beautiful? How could it be this complex on this scale? Mind-boggling. 
Do you think I stood there as a little child at 15 and looked at that and said, as a, well, as a teenager, well, that's a beautiful, complex piece. It just happened to be. Hmm? No, no. I look at it and said, no, there's a designer. Who's the designer? Well, uh, it says on the little plaque there, Andrea Del Sarto. I don't know her, but she's the designer. She's the designer. See, highly complex design and beauty speaks of a designer. We all know that. So why, when you look at the cosmos, would you not make the same uh, uh, summation? Uh, God uh, is uh, much like an artist, but the difference between God as an artist and creating the cosmos by the word of his mouth and an artist uh, is this. Uh, somebody like Rembrandt, Picasso, they use existing materials. So what does an artist use? You're no artist here? Okay, they have some kind of pencil, charcoal, whatever, some kind of pencil. Uh, they have uh, you know, brushes, paints, different kinds of paints, canvas, whatever they're painting on. They have all these things. So they take something abstract and they make it concrete. They have a beautiful thought and they put it down and they make the abstract concrete. See, God is, is uh, not like that. He thought up something abstract, i.e. the cosmos and all of its beauty and complexity, and it, there was nothing there. That's what ex nihilo means, there was nothing there. So uh, he created canvas. He created color. He created the materials you'd make a brush out of. So when God did everything, he did it by the word of his mouth. Okay, it's a beautiful day, is it not? You should be cooking out today on the Weber, I'm just saying. Okay, so I'm going to challenge. I don't know who cooks at your house. I usually get the grill duty. In fact, I was told earlier this morning I got grill duty this afternoon. So it's good. Pork chops on the grill. So imagine if I go out there today and I'm standing there looking at my Weber uh, and I'm out there for like two, three hours just staring at the grill and my wife comes out and there's no fire, nothing's happening. There's no coals. And I just tell her, she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, hey, I'm just, I'm just trying to project coals into my Weber. By the word of my mouth, I have spoken. Nothing's happened yet. How long can I stand there and speak coals into my Weber grill? I'm going to be there a long time, huh? You know? How about if I pour the Weber, I pour the, uh, I pour the, the, the coals that are not lit yet into the Weber grill, and then I just stand there speaking fire? You're going to probably, I'm going to probably lose my job, huh? Right? And like, that's insane. Now, I know if you're scientifically minded and a physicist and smart, and I know some of you are here, there's probably some kind of probability it's off the grid that fire could eventually start. Well, it's possible, but I'm thinking logically not. What did God do? By the very word of my mouth, I created the complexity of the cosmos that has rationality about it, has predictability about it, mathematics about it, perfect alignment of this and that, and it's ever expanding into what? It's by the word of his mouth. Talk about power, the power. By the word of, the God, word of God, he made all that you see. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, uh, years ago, he wrote a book uh, called Genesis in Time and Space. I read it right after I got out of college in 1980. Uh, and in that, he says that, God, there's a quote, says that God possesses power beyond all that uh, we can imagine in the human finite realm. He was able to create and shape merely by his spoken word. That's power. So if he has that kind of power and you look at your life, whatever your issues are, maybe you want to, you know, whatever your complexities are, you should never think there's no way God's got this. This is way beyond his ability. He looks down from heaven and says to you, hey, if I can speak all of this complexity into an existence, your situation, not a problem. It's not a problem. It's not a problem. He, he says he made all of the heavens. Well, I want to focus on the heavens for just a minute because I like astronomy and you can't stop me. It's totally awesome. Uh, so let's, let's just talk about the, the, let's talk about that which God has made. Let's just focus for just a second on the sun. Uh, I think I have a, a picture of the sun. See that? God made that by the word of his mouth. 
Uh, that sun in our solar system comprises 99% of the total mass of our solar system. That's amazing. Um, it would take um, 10 hours with light traveling at the speed of light to cross our solar system. How, now, by the way, because we're a trivia kind of church, how fast is the speed of light? 186,282,000 miles per second. It would take 10 years to just cross our solar system. That's amazing. I mean, you see all that immensity, and I think of God. And then that's, that's the world that we live in. Um, when you think about this particular sun that we, we so enjoy, uh, there's one physicist and, and, uh, uh, who's uh, a great professor. His name is DeYoung. This is what he says about our sun. He says, in just one second, the sun releases more energy than mankind has produced since the creation, including all the engines combined, uh, all the power plants, and all the bombs ever detonated. In one second, the energy exchange on the sun produces more energy than all of that combined. Would you not call that power? Who would look at that and go, hey, that's no big deal. Hey, God, you did that? That's not, no, that's not that big of a deal. No, it's awesome, awesome power. Uh, is the sun the largest uh, star that we can see? These are softball questions. No, no. Um, I'll give you another one. Uh, Antares is a bright red orange, orange star. It's in the Eye of Scorpion constellation. Um, uh, this particular uh, star is 700 times the size of our sun. 700 times. Uh, its brightness is equivalent to 9,000 of our suns. I mean, and this is just one of the massive stars as a case in point. I think I have um, another uh, picture of, of stars. You can kind of see, see our sun, how small it is. And we think it's really big. I mean, it's over 800,000 miles in diameter, but if you look at this particular thing, Antares is massive. And then you got this Beetlejuice over there. Did you see the movie? <laughs> I used to think that was, it was uh, Betel Geese, but I was wrong, wasn't it? Then I saw the movie and I understood astronomy. It's Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice is a <laughs> massive star. You have to have some humor in a sermon, do you not? Yeah. Anyway, so let's think about the complex of the world in which we live, because God's put his fingerprints all over it. He, he created these things by the word of his mouth. Uh, the Milky, Milky Way galaxy, of which all of our particular uh, planets enjoy their spinning, um, is no fluke about like where we are on the arms of the Milky Way galaxy as it spins in space. God strategically placed this on an outer arm in a dark spot of space so we can see the brightness of the cosmos. Uh, I just finished a book by... Um, Hugh Ross, astrophysicist, uh, and it's titled, Why is the Universe the Way That It Is? He's a Christian and a great thinker. Here's what he says about our placement in the Milky Way galaxy by the word of the mouth of God. Here's what he says. He says, another distinctive of the Milky Way galaxy is the galaxy cluster in which it resides. He says, nearly all other galaxies in the universe reside within dense cl clusters of galaxies with giant or supergiant galaxies as nearby neighbors. He says, these giants and supergiants intermittently blast their whole neighborhood with radiation. Not good. I, I added to Dr. Ross. Um, he probably doesn't use short words like that. Um, he says, also their gravity and the gravity of the thousands of smaller galaxies associated with them significantly distort the structures of the galaxies they contain. Thus... He says, advanced life is not possible for galaxies dwelling in typical galaxy clusters. He then adds this. He says, the supergiants near, oh, nearby where the galaxies are widely dispersed uh, can't provide life. He says, a typical galaxy cluster contains more than 10,000 closely packed galaxies. The Milky Way's cluster, called the local group, contains only about 
40, not 10,000. He says two medium-sized uh, uh, clusters are the Andromeda and the Milky Way. All the rest are smaller dwarf. What's the point of all of that? God put us out in the middle of darkness space on an on a arm of a spinning galaxy away from these super giants, these other galaxies, that if we live near them, an occasional birth, burst of radiation would fry all of us. Forget the Weber grill. And we just happen to be flung out there? No, what did God do? God says, I'm going to place you exactly right there. And not only will you be protected from radiation blast, but from this location of this darkness, you'll be able to see the wonder of my heavens because the stars are his handiwork. Uh, I want to show you a picture of uh, Daniel the prophet. Daniel the prophet in the lion's den. Does he look worried? No, he's not worried. He's not worried. Why? Because that same power of God is holding the mouths at bay. Now, notice this from an artistic standpoint. Uh, the darkness starts at the back of the picture, does it not? Yep. Are you with me today or? Yeah, I'm just feeling cool, getting really laid back. Uh, join with me in this sermon. Um, you see the dark and the black? Yes. Uh, then it gets gradually lighter as you come forward. So when you get to the, the animals in the front, they're, they're, especially this one down at the bottom, this one line, uh, they're very white. And then all of a sudden, what, what's the color of the prophet? Black. Think about this from an artistic standpoint. That color change, when you get to the black up here uh, in the foreground against that light and then the dark, makes the prophet jump out. Does it not? See, this is, this is like what God does. God's like an artist like this. He's like a Rembrandt who painted this. He, he's going to take our little planet, put it on the outer arm of the Milky Way galaxy, just at the right spin, right location, so we're protected. Uh, and he says, you know, from here you can see the glory of my cosmos. You're protected from radiation. And this was done by the word of my mouth in a second. How great is God? How great is God? He's great. When's the last time you praised God for a nebula? You did it today? I got up this morning at 5 o'clock. God, I love nebulae. I love them. Don't, don't lie to me, did you? No. So think about it. The tarantula nebula. How big is it? Tarantula nebula. It is 780 light years across. So light traveling at roughly 186,000 miles per second. 780 light years. It would finally cross just one nebula. One. Should you not read an astronomy book? I do. And stop and look at that and go, how great is God? How great is God? I mean, I stop all the time. Um, the placement of the moon, perfect for tidal action, uh, for us to have rain, etc. Uh, Jupiter's placement with Saturn absorbs space debris so we're not hit. The spot on Jupiter is 16,000 miles in diameter. You can park Earth there. And you look at the immensity of this and you're like, hey, what's for lunch, you know, hey. No, you should look at the immensity of this and do what? Praise God for that. Because that same God is the one who sent his son to be your savior and who redeemed you, and now he's your shepherd, and don't you think he cares more for you than all these things spinning around out there? That's how great he is. It says God created the heavens. He also says he created the host. Well, what does that mean, the host? Well, uh, the, the Hebrew word Shabbat, host, can mean two lexical things. Number one, it can denote stars, moon, etc., planets, that he created the host. Okay, so he did. Shabbat, from which we get Shabbat, uh, God's name, Lord of hosts, um, also denotes angelic beings. So what this tells us is that God not only created the seen, but the unseen, because, because angels are not eternal. So he created them too by the word of his mouth. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 19, tells us about angelic host when the prophet says this, therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and who was with him? 
all of the Shavah, the hosts, hosts of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left hand. Are these angels or demons? They're, they're holy angels that had not defected. They're standing, so when you see God, when you appear in his presence, uh, what do you see when you see him? Well, you, you see angelic beings around him, millions of them. And before his throne, according to Isaiah 6, you see the seraphim class of angels because they're put together like a military rank. You see them in front of his throne saying what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. They chant this 24-7. It's this rhythmical chant of his holiness and these angels you see, when God created the, the heavens, he also created the, the heavenly hosts, which are the angelic beings that inhabit the, the heavens. Uh, Isaiah chapter 24, verse 21, talks about uh, the demonic class of hosts uh, and how God's going to deal with them. Notice what it says in Isaiah 24. Isaiah 24 through 27 is called the little apocalypse in the book of Isaiah, meaning it's a miniature of the book of Revelation. So when I was in grad school um, back in the day, I did a, a, a comparative study between Isaiah 24 to 27 and the book of Revelation. It's like a one-to-one -one chronological correspondence. Uh, and in this, when you get to chapter 24, verse 21, this is what Isaiah says. It shall come about in that day, the day of the Lord when he comes in judgment, that the Lord will punish on high who? It's in English, you see it? He will punish on high the host of the exalted ones. Uh, and on earth, the kings of the earth. So if you read the whole chapter from verses 5 to 13, he makes it known that at the end of time, uh, which we are fast approaching that, when you get to the end of time, verses 5 to 13, God's going to say the rebellion of mankind against his law, his moral law, and his spiritual truth will be so great, it's going to pollute the entire planet. And you read chapter 24, he's going to shake the earth with his hand. But at the end of this judgment of God, as he talks about in Revelation, at the end of this, he's not only going to judge the kings of the earth, the politicians who threw truth to the wind, He's going he's gonna to judge the high exalted ones behind those politicians. Those would be the demonic beings. He's going to deal with them too. That's an eschatological study of prophecy. Uh, I'm digressing, but it excites me. And we'll, we'll get into that sometime. But I'm here to just say God created the, the demonic class and the angelic class by the word of his mouth. Uh, in a word. How, how strong are angels? Very. Very. very yeah. Uh, I went to seminary with a guy who uh, played for the Detroit Lions. And I remember I was in the weight room one day when I was like 21 years old uh, or 22 years old. And he was in there working out. And I'm thinking, I'm his size. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, he was doing the weight bench machine. And I'm like, he's picking up the stack. I'm like, okay, okay, great. Uh, yeah, angels much more powerful than that guy ever was. Uh, Psalm 103 verse 20 says about angels, Bless the Lord, ye his angels, that excel in strength. Could an angel pick up the entire Nautilus stack? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, no problem to it for an angel. Uh, they will use their power according to Matthew 24, 30 to 31. Jesus says at the end of the tribulation, he'll dispense the angels to gather the elect from the four winds when he comes to set up his kingdom. He's going to send them out to round up all those believers uh, that will be alive at the end of the tribulation. Um, the tomb of Christ. 
when Christ was resurrected, and it says in Mark chapter 16, 3, 3 to 4, that an angel, a mighty angel, was sent to roll the stone away. It's really, it's, it's a reason why you would want to learn to Greek, read Greek. Because when it says that he rolled the stone away, the word that is used in these contexts to explain that is the Greek word to hurl, H-U-R-L. So it's not like the angel just came and took this massive stone. And if you come with me to Israel in February when we're going, we'll show you the tomb of Christ and the massive track for the stone. This stone weighed tons. So he didn't just go, well, let's, let's just push it out of the way. Mm -mm. It says when the angel came, he just took and just threw it. No problem for him. And you worry about your life, that God can control things and, and work in your life in a profound way? No, he has power. He gave the angels great power. And so those particular beings are there available to you. How do I know that? Well, because I read my Bible. Hebrews 1.14 says this. Are they angels? Not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. What's the answer to the rhetorical question? Yes. You ever seen an angel? Don't look at your wife. She's right next to me. It's a great opportunity to build my relationship. That's not what I'm talking about. You know, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about an angel of God. You know, he said they're sent to, to saints. I'm sure that on your first day in heaven, when you step into his presence, there's some angels that are going to come to you and yeah, I was with you in Fallujah. I was with you in that car crash. I was there. One of, one of my friends uh, in World War II, a uh, guy at my first church, uh, church uh, Ivan Harper was his name, was walking through the forest with two buddies in the army. Uh, and a machine gun opened up. German machine gun opened up and sprayed them. He said, we were walking three abreast. They died. He did not. He asked me one day, what do you think happened there? How, did, how was there not a bullet for me? And I said, well, Ivan, God, God had more things for you to do. He became a prisoner of war, and then his position was overrun by the Russian, and he was freed, as the Russians freed him. But he had an amazing story to tell. Uh, but God had much more to, for Ivan to do. My youth pastor, when I uh, grew up and was going to college, uh, uh, told us a story about he and his wife uh, in Washington State. They wrecked their car in the middle of nowhere in the forest, and, and there was no cell phones, and he pulled his wife out of the car and laid her down on the pavement. She's dying in her own blood. And he said, no cars, no cell phones, nothing, nobody. And he said, out of the darkness came a man with a black bag and said, excuse me, I'm a doctor. Did a tracheotomy there on the side of the road. Saved her life. And he said, I was so caught up in the moment because you know, another car eventually came, blah, blah, blah. He said, I was so caught up with what was going on. He said, I didn't even look to see like where he went. He got guy... He said there was no car, no motorcycle, nothing. He just came out of the woods. And he said, when I looked up to tell him thank you, he's not there. And I don't know how he left. He said, I know to this day, he said, my wife does too. That was an angel of God sent to save her life. That Hebrews tells us this, that they came to minister to us. If you read chapter 13 of Hebrews, to so jump ahead if you want to read it, he tells you in verses 1 and 2, you better be, care when you, be careful when you show hospitality because you might show hospitality to angels and not even know it right? So they're there. Who created them? God, by the word of his mouth. He also created the waters that we enjoy. He created the angelic class, the astral class, all the things that he's made. He also created water. Don't you find it inter interesting when you watch science shows and they're probing the cosmos to try to find life? What are they looking for first? Water. Water. We think we found it in a crystallized format under the subterranean turf of Mars and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but are you finding it in oceans that average 12,100 feet deep like you do on Earth? Uh, no. 
Uh, because the earth was, you know, strategically placed here by the word of God. And he put us out here on this edge of this Milky Way galaxy. And he gave us plenty of water. So how much water did he give us? A lot. 97% of earth's uh, water is found in the oceans. Uh, and I've read all the articles. How many oceans are there? Everybody debates about everything. Uh, I'll leave that to you to talk about at lunch. How many oceans are there exactly? God made them all. Well, you know, the Atlantic, the Pacific, the Indian, the Arctic, etc. But of all of the countries of the world, there, uh, on the earth, there's only 1% of all water is fresh water. Really? Wow. Uh, and the countries that have 50% of the water are not, it's not the United States. It's Brazil, Russia, Canada, Indonesia, uh, China, and Colombia. They have 50% of the fresh water. Don't you find this interesting? That in all of things that God made by the word of his mouth, he positioned the 1% of the water where it needed to be, and we have enough here to have a drink this afternoon. Shouldn't you thank him? Water, water. When did God make all this? Well, day number three, Genesis chapter one, verse nine says, day number three of creation. Then God said, let the waters into the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And then what happened? It was so. And God called the dry land earth because it was dry immediately. It didn't take millions of years. It was dry immediately. Called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters, he called the seas. And God looked at that and said to himself, it's good. It's good. Could you imagine this? You have an entire planet covered with water, primordial seas, and God looks at it and goes, okay, it's day three. I speak for a division between land and water, so all the subterranean land mass that's under the water, I want it to burst forth. I'm going to move the tectonic plates. I'm going to send some earthquakes to bubble it all forward, push the things aside. I'm going to create South America, North America. I'm going to make it all, and I'm going to just speak it into existence by the word of his mouth. That's power. See, that's why you should praise God. Because he did all this by the word of his mouth. He made it all happen. Only a fool would look at that and say, man, that's not that big of a deal. No, that's awesome. So what's the result? The practical result of all that? This is verse 8. You know, theology should lead you to, to doing something. So what should you do? Verse 8. Here's your challenge for the day. What should you do? Let all the earth do what? Fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world do what? Stand in awe of him. Notice he's going to reinstate what he's already told you. Why should you praise God and stand in awe of him? For he spoke and it was. He commanded and it stood fast. That's some kind of power. Uh, when I was in a college back in the 70s, uh, Carl Sagan was kind of the big scientist on the block. Uh, he said this one day on uh, ABC News Nightline. Quote, we live on a hunk of rock and metal that circles a humdrum star that is uh, one of 400 billion other stars that make up the Milky Way galaxy, which is one of the billions of other galaxies which make up the universe, which may be one of a very large number, perhaps an infinite number of other universes. He says that is the perspective on human, that's his perspective on human life and our culture that is well worth pondering. Hmm. Really? Is that worth pondering? Yeah. But then he added this later toward the end of his life. Uh, he said, our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. Uh, in our obscurity, in all of this vastness, there's no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. This is not, not sad. Carl Sagan, in all of his great thinking as a scientist, could look at, why are we on the dark part of the Milky Way? Nah, it's just, you know, nihilistic. There's no God. Just by chance, there's no one's coming to help us. Instead of saying, now God strategically placed us here so we can see the wonder of his handiwork, I must worship him. He says, no one's coming to help us. You know what? Somebody already came to help us. Did you know this? 
The creator came to help us. Jesus was the creator. Read Colossians 1, 16 and 17. He's the creator. He came to help us because we as sinners can't help ourselves. And boy, do we need help. Do we not just follow the news? We need help. What he do? He came to redeem us by laying his life down for us. Talk about power. Power that he said, I can lay my life down. I can pick it up again. And he did. Talk about power. So the next time that you are in your lab as a scientist working on something with a microscope and you see some cool, intricate stuff through the lens, what should you do in the quiet lab? Praise God. You should become a Pentecostal at that moment. <laughs> what would a Pentecostal do? In the first service, I said, we're going to read Psalm 33 today. Some little kid in the back went, yay! <laughs> so your lab, you see something cool under the microscope. Everybody else is sitting there taking notes, and you're over there going, yes! <laughs> Praise God. Um, next time you're in your boat at night on the Potomac, socially distanced, of course, from others on the boat, uh, and you look up at the star-studded sky and the beauty of the evening, and you look up and you say to your son, check that out. That's my father's handiwork. Praise him for that. Next time you're a doctor, we have many in our church, and you're looking at the complexity of a human system, because I've seen the results of what happens to a stroke. And I've seen what, what God can do in healing a person with a stroke, that the body can heal itself, and they can reclaim motor movement. I've seen it. It's unbelievable. Who doesn't look at those kind of things as a doctor and say, man, God, you are so amazing. You spoke this complexity into existence. I praise you. Next time you're flying your military jet through an amazing cloud system, because remember, you're in the front seat and can see. I'm in the back in a commercial jet, you know, kind of looking down, hoping they'll put the window shades down near me. When you're flying through amazing cloud systems, what should you be saying as you're looking out, as you're with your co-pilot? What should you be saying as you're looking out? Praise God. Look at that. Because if that is, that majesty of that cumulus cloud system is like that, it, and the glory of the sun shining through it and illuminating it, what must the throne of God look like? You know, the next time you are enthralled at spiderweb lightning that you see, because I went out in my yard and watched it the other night until it got too close to me. I didn't want to see God. <laughs> so I went back inside with my umbrella. Um, pastor died praising God. Uh, but when you go out there and you see the handiwork of God and see the awe of it, do you stop and praise him for it? And then uh, if you get a chance to hike in the Shenandoah this time of year with your kids, the wife, and you get to a point where you look back down the valley below and you see all the trees turning the color, the, the reds, the yellows, who looks at that and goes, man, that's kind of cool. What does the godly father, the godly mother, the godly teenager do? Now they look at that and they say, look at the wonder of the art, artistry of God. And we've got to stop right here and praise God for it. So you have many things to do this day. Don't stand it. I'm not telling you. The pastor said, stand, look at the Weber and wait for it. I didn't say that. No, you're going to thank God for the coal that goes in the Weber grill and the lighter fluid, etc. But you should be praising God and wasting no time doing it because he's so great. Let's pray. God, uh, our lives are full of all kinds of uh, issues, trials, adversities, moments of great joy. That's just life. But may we never forget behind all of that is the powerful God that uses the word of his mouth to create all that we see. And may we not waste any time when we see these things giving you praise. For that's what we're going to be doing for eternity. So we might as well get ready now uh, and lift your name high in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. And there will be prayer counselors up at the front. If you would like to have someone pray for you, whatever your situation is, feel free to come forward. And if not, it's Weber time. So enjoy. Good to see you.